I'm happy you're here uh, because we're in week uh, nine of James. We've been in James all summer long. We've just been really mining James for, uh, for every single thing it's worth. Uh, next week, Taylor's going to wrap up James uh, next Sunday, so don't, don't miss that. Uh, but we're, we're looking at James because James encourages you and I. He encourages you and I to be strong in our faith, reminding us to stand strong and to not waver. And we need this reminder. We need to be reminded that uh, we can't back down to culture. We can't back down to uh, the pressures of others. And and we need to remain uh, strong in our faith. And so in this moment, what we realize is that we come to a place in James where he begins to talk about building trust in community. He talks about bringing help and to bring healing in relationships. And so I don't know if you're here today and you're fighting with anybody. I won't have you raise your hand. Uh, but if you're here and you're in a quarrel, you're in a fight, you're in an argument, uh, there's this, this awkward thing between you and someone else, I want you to know that you're in good company today and that James wants to address it. He wants to address the reality that it's hard to navigate life in community and not have conflict. And in fact, we live in a world uh, where there's a lot of division in fact, if you look at our country, it feels like we are more div- uh, there's more division now than maybe ever. And, and this morning in our 9 a.m., there's a lot of people who are much older than me, and, and no one gave me pushback. So I'm going to go ahead and say I think we are probably more divided now than ever. And, and, and we have this responsibility, you and I, to recognize the potential for division to recognize that there are things, hot topics, issues, cultural uh, issues that are going to divide us. They have the potential to divide us. But we have to stand strong. We must remain united. And like so many of you, I look at all the, div- the division and all the, the hurt and the pain that's happening in our society. And I think I want to I bring healing. I want to bring help. I want to uh, solve all of the cultural problems. And yet I realize that my opinion sometimes supersedes my desire to bring healing. But I have an opinion on everything, and I want to get my opinion out, and sometimes that doesn't help. Sometimes that hurts more than it helps. And, and so we have this thing, this tension inside of us where we want to bring healing to the world, but we also want everybody to agree with us, and that will never transpire. And so there's this propensity for hurt and pain and, and, and separation and division, and there's a strong chance that every one of us in this room have somebody that we disagree with, whether it's in person or on social media, and, and, and we go, oh, I hate to see this person in person, or I don't want to hear their opinions, or I'm going to mute them or hide them or block them, because there are people who believe different than we do, and, and I want to be a part of the healing process, and James drags us into that. He drags us into being a part of the solution and not the problem, and there's so much hatred in the world, and, and healing is possible, but it's going to come on the heels of a lot of difficult conversations, And what happens, I think, a lot of times is we imagine that everybody gets in a room or certain people of power get into a room and and they determine how we're going to treat one another. And then they tell us how we should treat one another and that's how it works. And and we've actually seen this play out with with Jewish people in history. We've seen this play out with uh, African-American people in history. We've seen this play out with police officers in history and unborn babies in history and people of various genders in history. And so we're seeing that there's this idea that we're being told how to treat one another. We're being told how we should see one another and how we should behave around one another. And, And the problem is the world doesn't work like that. Feelings of rage and hatred, they don't come from up top, they come from something inside of us. Where there's a seed planted, something transpires, and and all of a sudden we think different of someone. Maybe they look at you wrong and you go, well, that person's not a nice person. 
Maybe they've stolen your lunch out of the refrigerator at work, and you're like, that person steals, and all of a sudden we start creating these biases. For example, several years ago, before I moved here, someone stole my truck. I had a Ford Explorer. It wasn't a nice Ford Explorer, so if I was going to steal a car, uh, I would have chosen someone else's, but they uh, went into the YMCA locker, and because uh, I was doing work, and uh, they took my keys and, and drove off. And it's the, if you've ever had a vehicle stolen, it's the weirdest feeling in the world, because you walk out and you go, I swear I parked right there. I know. And you look dumb for like 20 minutes wandering around the parking lot. And so uh, come to find out it was stolen. Uh, they did some research, found it was a 15-year-old black male uh, who was there with his grandmother. And he decided that he didn't want to be there any longer. And my vehicle was uh, the quickest option out. He drove it for several days, took everything out of it, including my car seat uh, for my child at the time. I don't have really small kids now. Uh, took my CDs, you know, the burned ones and the ones that I purchased. Took everything. Did some drugs in there, left a residue, a smell, uh, and then parked it in an apartment complex, and then he threw the keys in the woods. No reason at all. He could have left them kindly, but he did not. Uh, they recovered the vehicle, engine had been blown, uh, total loss. It was a 15-year-old black male. It would have been easy for me to go to my kids. Kids, 15-year-old black males steal cars. Watch out. They pass that down to their kids. Hey, look out. Got to be careful, 15-year-old black males. They're going to steal your vehicle. And all of a sudden, they pass it down to their kids, and then they tell their friends, and their friends tell their friends. And all of a sudden, we've spread this mindset that there's a bias against 15-year-old black males. So when you see one, you go, are you 15? i got to be careful. And we do this at a large scale. You and I do this on a small scale. When something happens, we start spreading word and spreading rumors, and all of a sudden, we start creating biases. And we look up and we realize that we have all of these people that we don't trust and all of these people that we uh, despise. And, and all of a sudden, we come into a community of faith like this, and we do the same thing. And the next thing we know, we're worshiping around people we don't trust. And it's broken. And what James wants to do is he wants to bring resolution because you and I do this in our communities of faith, but we do this on a global scale with the Japanese and the Vietnamese and the North Koreans and, and we do this with people in Russia and we're doing this with people in Ukraine and all of a sudden we're lumping everybody into these big groups and we say we don't like them. We don't trust them. We don't want to be like them. And we find that we start creating bigotry and hatred Right now, there's a crazy conversation over gender, and the left and the right seem to be more polarized than ever. If you're on the right, you've got to hate the left, and if you're on the left, you have to hate the right. And, and what we've realized is when we look back at a, a, a bigger scale, we go, we're just creating more diverse uh, uh, division. We're creating more hatred. We're perpetuating this argument that if we don't like people, and if we don't like them, we don't agree with them, then we can't be around them. And everything that we knew to be true and, and good seems to be in jeopardy. And, and there's this psychologist named Carl Jung, and he has this theory called collective unconscious. And his theory goes where he believes that the unconscious part of our brain, the memories and the impulses that we're not aware of, can actually be affected by other human beings. And we realize that all of a sudden through stories and, and narrative that's passed down that we create our own biases based on other people's experiences. We begin to spread our worldview to others and then they pick it up. Because of social media now, we can spread our biases and our hatred so much faster. People around the world have opinions about Americans and they've never even been here. Because of a collective unconscious, we start to pick this up and, 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 and now we have people in, in China and India and Russia and, and they have this warped sense of who we are. They don't know us, but because of a collective unconscious and we have the same warped view and we have to ask ourselves, what stops this process? What shifts the collective unconscious? And I believe it's the maturity of the individual. 
It isn't more yelling and more fighting. It isn't more tweeting and rioting. It isn't more trying to get you to agree with me and try to get others to align with my views. It comes through an ancient practice called confession and amends. That if we want to be part of the healing of the world, it starts in this room. It starts with the relationships that you're in. It starts with the people in your circle. It starts with the people nearest you. It starts with you and me coming to the place where we are willing to take part in this ancient practice of confession and amends. And in James 5, 16, he says this, Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Now, some theologians read this and go, this is what brings about physical healing. Others read this and go, this is what brings about relational, emotional healing. Regardless of how you read this, know that healing comes when you confess your sins one to another and you pray for one another. There's something so powerful that transpires in our lives when we begin to pray for people in our community. We begin to pray for people that we may not like. We begin to pray for people that we may hate. Something shifts in our mind. You cannot despise someone and pray for them. It doesn't work. And a lot of times we pray, I wish they would just change. I wish they would just change who they are. And if we'll pray long enough, what we'll realize is our prayer shouldn't be that they change. But our prayer should be that we change how we view them. That there are people doing horrible, uh, unthinkable evil in this world. And we should pray, and we should pray that they should change. We should pray that God changes our hearts, that we begin to see people the way he sees people, which is broken. And it says, if you will confess your sins one to another and pray for one another, something powerful transcends. It says, uh, therefore confess your sins one to another, pray for one another so that you may be healed. That's not the end. The urgent request of the righteous person is very powerful, and it's a fact. Meaning if you want to wield great power, and I think you have the capacity to, then we need to fall on our knees and pray. We need to be righteous people, and we need to pray fervently. I love power. I think we all do if we were honest. I love power. And power comes from various means. If you have a lot of money, uh, I do not. If you have a lot of money, you feel powerful. Uh, If you uh, are physically really strong, again, probably not me. You're powerful. You feel powerful uh, if you're in a position of power. You wield that power. There are various ways we gain power. What the scriptures are telling us is that they will, we will fervently pray at the request of the righteous person, someone who's living right, we'll wield great power in what we pray for. And in the context of what James is saying is that you and I should be wielding that power, using that power to pray for one another. Instead of building biases, instead of creating reasons why we should hate one another, and there's lots of reasons. We could all come up with reasons why we'd hate each other. Instead of this, what if we confess to each other that we're not perfect? Admitted that we all need Christ at the center of our lives, and all of a sudden we started praying for one another, how does that change how we see the people around us? And all of a sudden we start wielding this great power to evoke change in our communities, and that begins to spread. But it starts with confession. It starts with you and I being willing to confess our sins to one another. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound exciting. Like when I think confessing all of my sins to uh, any one of you, I think, no thanks, right? Because my sins are personal. They're my sins. They're my mistakes. Uh, why would I let people know that? There's something encoded into our DNA uh, societally that uh, there's like this self-preservation. 
well, I want to protect my image. I want to protect the way you see me. I want to protect uh, the way you relate to me. Uh, I, I, I want to protect my own dignity. I want to protect my own sense of power. Uh, I don't want to be vulnerable. None of us want to be vulnerable. I mean, maybe a little vulnerable, right? Enough to where you feel like you can relate and like you're open but not real vulnerable. And if I'm going to confess my sins to anyone else, it's going to create a level of vulnerability that may take us to a space that we're not comfortable in. And yet James is saying this is essential in bringing healing into our communities. That confession most often needs to take place in community. It needs to take place in community, and many times it has to take place before healing can come. That there are relationships that are broken. There are, uh, there are workplaces and, and places of faith that are broken. And, and, and any time there's an issue, we immediately begin to build excuses and search for someone to blame. And, and confession doesn't really come to mind, uh, at least not in the front. And whether it's a global issue or a local one or a personal one, we have people around us that we need to admit to that we're not perfect. There are things that transpire in our lives that that. We need to just simply admit that we're not innocent in our involvement in. And the way you heal is by confessing to others. You confess by admitting that you're not perfect. That you need healing as well as I need healing. There's something so powerful about ourselves, the will, our determined desire to to not look foolish or not look like we're broken. And every one of us walk into this space going, well, I didn't commit any sins. I'm I'm perfect. And all of us look at each other knowing that we're sinners. Every one of us are sinners and thought we're deed in action. We all sin uh, about what we've said and what we've done, should have said and should have done. Uh, The Bible tells us that we all sin and fall short of God's glory. And yet every one of us walk into this space going, not me. I mean, everybody else, yeah, because the Bible says, but not, not me. And it takes a great uh, uh, humility and vulnerability to go, yeah. Yeah, I'm not perfect. Yeah, I've made some mistakes. And com- confession is a powerful admission that we're not always right and that we're not always perfect and that our motives are not always pure. And many of us, we don't want to do that. And James says that the way that we bring healing is by confessing our sins, our wrongdoings, our insecurities, our fears, our prejudices, our biases, and we all want other people to confess their sins. Isn't it funny how we are? Like, yeah, you should do that for sure. This is, he's definitely talking to you. Uh, he's not talking to me, he's talking to you. We all want others to confess their sins. We all want others to admit their flaws. We all want others to admit that they're wrong. But in reality, the change, it starts with us. It changes with the person sitting in your seat, the tied your boots. And what I know about us is that hate is a masterful devil. That what hate does is it sneaks into our lives and it hides under the skin of normalcy. Hate slips in very subtly and it whispers to your ear that it's justified, that it's your friend, and that they're your enemy. And what I've noticed throughout the last few years, really, but mostly in the last few months, is that everything in our culture is pushing an us and a them. Everything. There's no us. It's us and them. And, and if you agree with this, then you don't agree with this, and you're not there. And if you're there, then you're not there. And, and what hate does is it slides in and says, not only are you not like that, but you should hate them. Not what they stand for, not what they believe, not their opinions. You should hate them. And hate says, but you're justified in this. And hate works tirelessly to gain as much power over us as it can. However, hate is powerless when we expose it. Confession destroys The enemy's desire to bring hate into our lives because hate fuels itself in secrecy. 
Our sins fuel themselves in secrecy. Sin is rendered powerless when we stop hiding it and we bring it before God and we bring it before our community and we stand up and speak out against it. All of a sudden, the thing that we've hidden is exposed. And it's only when we expose it that healing can come. And James is saying we've got to take part in confession. We have to come to an honest place where we're willing to admit that none of us are without some sin. And we all have some prejudice and some low tolerance for other human beings. And uh, I catch myself all the time paying attention to people that aren't like me because I'm told that you should fear people that aren't like you. And I'm, I see all the crime and the news and all the things that are happening and I don't want to be a victim. And so uh, there's some wisdom in that. But by and large, I start looking at everyone that's different than me as, as, as a potential enemy or a threat. And, and because of a few people who have done bad things, we start to lump everyone because of our collective unconscious into this category of being bad and dangerous. And, and all of a sudden, we don't realize it, but we've created these prejudices. We've created division. We've been programmed to see the world as all evil. And though there's a lot of evil in the world, and it seems to be increasing. This doesn't bring healing. It only perpetuates problems. Honesty, openness, confession is essential or are essential for bringing healing. What confession does is it stops the cycle of hatred and ignorance and bigotry and it, it resets the human heart. And we need it. We need our hearts to be reset. My wife, she always has technology problems. I think she thinks I'm a technology genius. Um, don't tell her otherwise. She's in kids' church. But uh, my advice every time is restart it. She's like, my computer's froze up, restart it. My phone doesn't work, reset it, right? And she forgets and she thinks I'm a tech genius. But the reality is most every problem that we have can just be fixed by restarting it. What does it look like for us just to reboot the human heart where we start fresh and start anew without all the residue of, of cultural biases and, and propaganda and news? What if we just immersed ourselves in Scripture and says, God, reveal to me what it is that you want me to see in the world and how you want me to see humanity. Pretending it doesn't exist only continues, but it doesn't stop things, and there are no innocent bystanders. You either feed hate or you feed love, and, and whatever you feed gets stronger. And so for you and I, so often we're being fed hatred, and that's usually what we allow through the filter of our hearts to feed us, and we wouldn't admit it, but we, we, we hate a lot of people. And in 1 John 1, verse 5, the scriptures say this. Now this is the message we have heard from him, Christ. And we declare to you, God is light. And there is absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with God, yet we walk in darkness, we're lying and we are not practicing the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we don't have any sin, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. There's this direct correlation between confessing sins and building community. Connecting with God and connecting with one another. You and I coming to a place where we're willing to admit this confession isn't about making things right necessarily with others as it is making things right with God. And a lot of us are more content with making things right with God 
But there's such a direct correlation. There's an interdynamic uh, dependence upon one another that the Bible consistently and annoyingly brings in this relational aspect. As we forgive others, we're forgiven ourselves. And the Bible keeps saying we have to confess not just to God but to one another. That we have to admit that we're not perfect. And there's something so damaging about walking around holding in the lie that we're perfect Walking around holding uh, corruption and hatred and malice and, and, and envy and holding these feelings in has an adverse effect, not just in our spiritual lives, but practically in our, in our health and our bodies. And, and medical science keeps revealing consistently that stress and fear and worry and anxiety, all these things affect us practically, mentally. And the Bible is giving us the pathway forward. He's saying we could bring health and healing even to our bodies and to our mind if we'll just walk in confession. And maybe you're in an argument right now. Maybe that somebody's close to you. Maybe you've been fighting with someone or maybe things are just weird between you and you just and someone else. You don't know why. Confess to someone that you might have done something or said something. And watch how that changes. Don't shift the blame. Don't keep making excuses. Our brains love to, to do that. They love to fill in the gap and create this uh, argument for why you should never cower and you don't want to be a doormat. And certainly there's some cases for that, but it feels like those cases are fewer and further between than how we actually live. And you may not have done anything, but at least admit that you're not perfect. That there's something that we can all admit, that we may have someone who's done something to us. And we all have had that happen. We've all had people attack us or say things about us or come after us or uh, try to damage us or our reputation. We've had people come after us. And it's not fair to go to them and say, well, I didn't do anything. You should tell me you're sorry. But we can go and say, I'm not perfect either. And you may be an innocent bystander, but you're not innocent in life. And all of us have something to confess before one another. Confession can only take us so far, though. We have to have the other part, which is amends. Amends is an essential aspect that partners with confession. Matthew 5.23 says, So if you are offering your gift on the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother, then come and offer your gift. you got to go to your brother. you got to go to the people in community with you, relationship with you. And make things right. Amends means that you make things right again. You don't just admit your faults or confess your wrongdoings, but you actually take the next step to make things right. It's not enough to just confess. In fact, a lot of confessions are done out of false pride, or real pride, false humility. Oh, yeah, I'm not perfect either. Oh, yeah, I've done some things too. Uh, yeah, whatever, you know, I'm, 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 I'm a bad person. And we often confess things. And the difference between a confession that's out of humility and a right heart and a confession that's made out of obligation is amends, the next step, how you follow up. I can come to you and say, yeah, well, I'm not perfect either. And I can leave and talk bad about you, destroy your name, destroy your reputation. That's not amends. How we behave and how we react and respond, even when we've been wronged, directly determines whether there's going to be help and healing, or whether you're going to perpetuate this cycle. And I've known people who would confess out of pride, who wouldn't follow up. Yeah, I'm sorry I did this, but then leave and, and, and talk about it and, and keep bringing it up. There's this first thought test that all of us can put it through. If someone's wronged you and you think of their name, what's your first thought? Is your first thought vengeance? It's usually mine. Is your first thought violence? Is your first thought all the things that you should have said or will say as soon as you see them? Or is your first thought that you've allowed it to go, that you've let it go? 
If you're willing to make amends, the first thought test will tell you whether you've decided to make amends or not. How we respond and behave after confession determines and dictates whether healing will come. And and confession and amends are actually a, a painful process. And it's not always simple, and it's not always easy, and, and you don't always get to confess and make amends, and then you guys walk off holding hands and you're best friends again. Like, there are people that, uh, that will never be brought back into your life, and there are people that shouldn't be brought back into your life. Trust takes a while to earn, and it's easily broken. And you can't force friendship, and you can't force others to apologize, and you can't force relationships, and you can't force people to come back into your life And what I know about confession and amends is that you won't always get satisfaction out of every encounter either. Forgiveness as a whole is actually really unsatisfying if you think about it. If I forgive you, I have to let it go, which means I don't get to play the narrative of us arguing over and over in my head. I don't get to come up with all the creative ways that I'm going to destroy you. Uh, I don't get to come up with all the violent things and the gestures that I'm going to use. Because those things are more satisfying. Throwing something and punching a hole in the wall, that's physical and that feels satisfying in the moment. The effects are hurtful. But it's satisfying in the moment. You feel like you've given full vent to your anger. Forgiving and letting go, it's not always satisfying. To have someone hurt you... To admit that you're not perfect either, but you're going to try to make things right moving forward, and then letting it go, that's hard. If you've hurt someone, said something, done something, going and saying, I'm sorry, I've done that, and I won't do it again, I'm going to make this up to you, and then actually following through, that's difficult, and it's not satisfying many times. But Jesus says in John 20, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven then. But if you retain the sins of any, they are all retained. And if we look at our lives... And we look at our interactions with others, we have to ask, how many of others' sins have we retained? How many things are we holding on to that others have done? This passage speaks to the power of confession and amends within a community. This isn't individual as much as it is communal. If you'll confess your sins, the sins will be forgiven. And some people will use these words to say, well, we're the ones that forgive. We don't. God brings forgiveness. God's the one that brings healing. What Christ was actually saying in this passage is that when Christians can declare, we we have the opportunity to declare genuine repentance and a belief in the gospel will actually bring about forgiveness. That our lives are a declaration. As we're forgiving others, we're realizing God's forgiving us. And we're a declaration of God's ability to give us grace and mercy we declare freedom to all who enter into confession and amends. God's the one that does the work. We get to do the declaration. So we have to resist this need to bring closure to everything because you're not always going to solve everything like a 90s sitcom. It's not going to always wrap up well for us. We're not always going to be able to go to someone, I've wronged you, I'm so sorry, I want to make it up, and everything's going to be wonderful. And we can't force it, we can't manufacture it, we can't make people ask forgiveness from us. We can't make people treat us with dignity. We can't make people come back into our lives. But what you and I can do is we can hold space for people. There's something so powerful in our ability to hold space for others. I come into your life. I say something. I do something to you. It hurts you. You come to me. Hey, I'm not perfect either, uh, but this wasn't right. This is what you've done, and I'd like for us to work this out. And I go, absolutely not. Get out of my way. I'm going to plow forward. I don't want to see you again. Hold space for me. You can't force me, but you can hold space for me. 
And I think how many people in my life I've burned bridges with and I've written off and I've, uh, I've distanced myself from it. says, I don't want anything to do with you. And I should have just held space. See, when we hold space, it gives the opportunity for God to work on the human heart, to soften our hearts and to bring us back into community. But if you burn bridges, that's it. It's over. Burning bridges is a lot more fun than holding space. But when we hold space for people, it means we don't continue to talk about them poorly. It means we don't continue to treat them bad. We just simply hold space. And we wait and we pray, as the scriptures say, for them. That God would soften their hearts. That they would bring them back in right relationship. And in reality, when we admit that we're not perfect either, holding space should be our posture from then on. And it may take weeks, could take months, could take years. It may never happen in our lifetime, but we will stand before God one day for our actions. And I want to be the person who's held space for people quicker than we've burned bridges. I want to allow people the opportunity to come in and go, hey, I've thought through things. Because here's the thing, I'm not the same person I was 25 years ago. Maybe you are. I don't have the same hairstyle either. I'm not the same person. I've changed. I've grown. I look back and I go, man, if people had, had known me back then, and maybe the pride and the hubris and the way I treated others, I'm so thankful they held space for me because I've grown and, and in some ways, in many ways, I've matured and I'm not the same person. And so had somebody had written me off 25 years ago, I wouldn't have people in my life today and I think I'm not going to be the same person in 25 years. I'm going to be older probably better looking. I don't know. The idea, though, is that if we hold space and people hold space for us, then we build relationships. We grow stronger in our community. And so we can change what we do now. We can't change the past. What's done is done. We can go back and ask forgiveness and, and hope people open that space back up. But we can change how we move forward. Can we be people who are willing to admit that we're not perfect, that we sin and thought word, deed, and action, that we make mistakes but we're going to make a confession and we're going to seek to make amends and we're going to hold space for people in our lives so that God can work on their hearts and bring them back around. That doesn't mean there isn't time for like confrontation and brutal honesty. That doesn't mean that we just simply become doormats for everyone. But as we navigate life, we realize that there are moments that God wants to bring help and healing into our community and our relationships, families. But that space can only happen if we're created. And there are people in your life that you, right now, you need to seek forgiveness from. You need to look, you need to look them in the eye and, and say, hey, I've wronged you. I have, and I'm sorry. There are people in your life that need to do that to you, and they may or may not. But we can change how we see them. We can allow space for help, and we can allow space for healing to come in, and for God to do his best work. But the answer to conflict and prejudice is, the ability to extend and to receive grace. That if we want to bring healing in our communities and in our families and our relationships, we want to bring healing to a world. I know that sounds like a, a really large goal for us, but it starts with you and me. It starts with our posture. Can we as God's people hold space for others who aren't like us, people who don't live like us or believe like us, or maybe they've actually gone out of their way to harm us or hurt us. They crucified Jesus. Can we hold space for them? Can we leave space for healing? So here's what I want us to do today. Before we wrap up, we're going to confess our sins to each other. So let's go. Hope you're not visiting today. I want you to spend time with the Lord. If you're here and you've aligned your life with Christ, you, you would claim to be a follower of Christ, then I want you to have a conversation with God in this space. Between you and God, say, God, is there anyone I've wronged? 
that I've been hiding, I've been making excuses for? Is there someone I need to go to today? Is there someone I need to call? Is there someone I need to visit? And I need to make things right. Do I need to confess that I'm not perfect, that I'm broken? Are there people in my life that I'm quarreling with and I'm feuding with that I need to squash it? And let's start, let's start here and now making things right. Let's start being the people who give the grace that we so desperately need. Give the forgiveness that we so desperately need. There are people who've hurt you. Today what we need to do is we need to find those people. Uh, maybe not practically if that's still a sore source, but we need to make sure that we've extended to them this desire that we've saved space. That we desire to rebuild and repair that relationship in God's time. It's in his time that that transpires. We don't force it. We can't manufacture it, but we can create space for it and say, I'm saving space for you. I'm saving space for you. You've hurt me, and then we recognize that hurt. That's out there, and I'm saving space for you because God's not done. He's not done with us, and I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful that he didn't burn bridges between us because we've given God so many reasons to write us off and be done for us, but instead, he sent his son to die on the cross for sins he did not even commit, and he's saving space for us. He's giving us time to come back to him, to build a right relationship with God, so let's save space for others. If you would, I want you to bow your head and close your eyes this morning. So this morning we have an opportunity to confess that we're not perfect. And we'll pray a prayer of confession in just a moment. And then we have to make amends. Today I want you to begin to ask God, how do you want me to make amends? How do you want me to proceed with what's transpired, whether you were the aggressor or you were the victim, how do you want me to transpire? How should I work? How should I operate? Take the first thought test. What am I thinking about when I see or when I hear this name? What is my posture? What is my desire? Is there hate? Is there malice? Is there anger, bitterness, bigotry hiding somewhere in my heart? What I know about that is that it hides in the smallest spaces under the best conditions and we're not willing to wrestle with it and God says, I want it today. I want to deal with it today. I want to work in all aspects of your heart this morning so that we no longer have to carry the burden. It's so exhausting keeping a mental list of all the people that we don't want to run into in the community. It's exhausting keeping a list of all the people that we should hate and, and remembering why we hate them. It becomes exhausting. This morning what we get to do is we get to just lay it at the Lord's feet. We get to lay it down before God and to take it from me, this burden, this weight that I've been carrying. I'm gonna lay it at your feet so that amends can happen. So gracious God, we come and we admit that our sins are too heavy to carry, too real to hide and too deep to undo. So forgive what our lips tremble to name, what our hearts can no longer bear, and what has come for us, a consuming fire of judgment. So God set us free from a past that we cannot change and open to us a future in which we can change and grant us grace to grow more and more in your likeness and image through Jesus Christ, the light of the world. So God, fill in every contrite heart the promise of redeeming grace. Forgiveness can come to our sins and cleanse us from an evil conscience through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. God, we enter into this time in our service today where we confess that we are sinners in thought, word, deed, and action. We've sinned by what we've done. We've sinned by what we've said. We've sinned by what we should have done. We've sinned by what we should have said. We're sinners. But it's only by your grace and mercy 
that we receive grace, but we have to ask. And if we'll ask, you're faithful to remove our sins as far as the east is from the west. And so remove those things from us. Forgive us our sins as we forgive others. So we thank you. And we praise you. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. If you would, let's stand and sing.